ESL teachers, if they are not native speakers of the language of their students, they don't have that safety net of the 10%. You know, they don't have safety net to fall back inherently on the English to use for clarification. They have to have really effective tools in their tool belt to be able to provide comprehensible input to their students. They have to be masters of vocabulary development, comfortable using gestures, pictures, these little strat pedagogical strategies that we've picked up along the way, whether we teach ESL or LOAT, and they have to continuously use them to be able to ensure that they're doing the right steps for clarification and their students are understanding and comprehending. And so I really, I, you know, hats off to those ESL teachers that don't speak the native language because they're really, they're going the extra mile. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Do teachers of languages other than English, or LOAT teachers, collaborate enough? What are some ways these educators could learn from one another to help build better language programs for all students? What are some of the common misconceptions about what it means to be a good language teacher, and how might understanding them help our students achieve greater language competency? We discuss these questions and much more in part one of a two-part conversation with Anna Mattis. Anna is an educational consultant and the product development manager for Seidlitz Education. Her love of language learning stems from childhood experiences as an immigrant and ESL student herself from Budapest, Hungary. Being proficient in multiple languages, she is passionate about second language acquisition for all students, sheltered instruction strategies, and research pertaining to heritage language learning and long-term ELLs. She has led professional development, coached teachers, and created educational products for both teachers and administrators working with ESL students. She has presented locally and nationally on best practices for quality ESL instruction, as well as effective training strategies when working with English language learners. Anna recently published the book, Seven Steps to a Language-Rich Interactive Foreign Language Classroom for LOAT Teachers with John Seidlitz, and also co-authored Boosting Achievement, Reaching Students with Interrupted or Minimal Education. She began her foreign language teaching career as a high school French teacher at Aldine ISD in Houston, Texas, and has worked as an ESL instructional coach in Round Rock ISD. Anna has an MA in foreign language education from the University of Texas at Austin and a BA in communication studies and art history from Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. She joined Sidelet's education from Region 13 ESC, where she served a dual role of bilingual ESL specialist and program manager for the bilingual ESL team. Anna and I have a lot in common as we both taught foreign language and are now both in the ELL space. So as you can imagine, we had a lot to discuss. So this is part one of a two-part series. Let's get started. Anna Mattis, welcome to Highest Aspirations. Such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, same here. And we were talking beforehand. This is a really exciting episode for me because 
Um, I've said in the podcast before, I was a, a Spanish teacher, foreign language teacher for a long time. So having this conversation about where those two worlds, um, foreign language and English language learners sort of intersect is super exciting for me. Absolutely. And I think it's the exact same for me because I've had my foot in both doors and it's such a neat experience to get to see both sides of it and see the collaboration potentials between the two. Absolutely. So let's dive in. So I, I guess I want to start with just kind of a basic question. And that is, do you think that teachers of foreign language and teachers of English language learners collaborate enough? That's such a good question. And I think the answer absolutely is no. There is so much more room for that collaboration. And maybe if I tell you just a little bit about where I'm coming from to give you that answer, you know, um, Hungarian was my first language. And then I was an ESL student myself. I taught foreign language. I started a French program in an inner city school north of Houston. And so as a high school French teacher, I was a little bit shocked that the world languages department, there was just about three or four of us, were just our own little entity. And when there was any professional development opportunity, we were grouped with the specials, you know, or the electives, meaning mm -hmm. we had professional development with the PE teachers or the CTE teachers. Not that they weren't amazing people, but that did nothing to, you know, really develop our craft or our pedagogy and to further more language acquisition between the two, you know, bodies of knowledge. Um, and then after I taught and I went to get my master's in foreign language education, specifically focusing on second language acquisition, my work shifted a little bit because it brought me to ESL teaching and tutoring. And what I noticed was as an instructional coach, as a specialist, that ESL teachers, they have this interesting little silo as well. ESL teachers in their departmental meetings meet with English language arts. And the reason that's interesting is because if you think about it, especially from a secondary setting, most English language arts curriculum is focused on literature, right? right. Right. and how we get literature strategies and how we get students to pass the standardized test, but not so much language development, which at the core, if you're an ESL teacher, that's what you need to be doing, right? Copious amounts of comprehensible input, getting students to practice the language, vocabulary strategies, which is absolutely happening in the LOAT classroom. So I just think there would be this mountain of energy exchange if those two groups were able to meet together more, you know? Absolutely. And our experience is, is I mean, it's really similar. And I'll just say before I sort of talk a little bit about what I've found that's, that, that you're sort of getting to now, I, I, I want to say that I, I can't think of a better person to have, to have this conversation with given your experience. And I'm glad you laid that out. But like my experience, I worked in... Um, in uh, sort of an urban setting, a school with a lot of diversity, a lot of English learners. I was teaching high school Spanish to uh, both students who were learning it for the first time and to heritage, heritage language speakers. And I found the same exact thing. It was the same situation. And then I confess, like, I, well, I don't, it's not a confession, but I moved to a school that was, that was very different um, in terms of there really wasn't that English learner population. So for the last 10 years or so, I really have not been on the ground and seen how things have changed or if they have in terms of that PD. It sounds like what you're saying is there's still lots of opportunity for that change. It hasn't really happened as much as you'd like to see. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, it's very interesting that now that I do predominantly 
foreign language and LOAT training, sometimes I get questions from ESL teachers saying, oh, I'm the ESL teacher. Am I allowed to come to your training? Do you think I would benefit from this? And I just want to welcome them with open yeah. arms and lay out the red carpet and say, absolutely. You know, when I was a an instructional coach, so I was an instructional coach in a school district just north of Austin, and I was predominantly a language coach. So I went into bilingual ESL dual language and foreign language classrooms. And the interesting thing was I picked up the majority of the strategies that I could then bring back to the ESL setting from working with those low teachers because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're already, they've nailed it. They're mastering, again, as I mentioned, the comprehensible input, encouraging students to talk using the target language and all of these very interactive and engaging strategies that our ESL learners can benefit from so much. So I agree. I think more structured opportunities for them to collaborate would just be so beneficial for our, our world. Yeah, no, totally agree. Let's back up for just a quick second and level set the term LOAT, which is used quite commonly, but I find some people don't know exactly what it means. Could you just tell us what the acronym means? Absolutely. So LOAT stands for languages other than English. The interesting thing is that schools across the country have a different term for the exact same thing. No, no, no surprise there. The terminology, right? the acronyms. Imagine the acronyms in education, right? Yeah. So some departments, it's going to be the world languages department. Some In some districts, it's going to be the foreign language department. And in some districts, it's going to be the LOAT, so languages other than English. It's really funny, Steve, you know, being in Texas uh, and down in the South, lots of my school districts that have predominantly Spanish speakers as well as Spanish staff, I talk to them on the phone and they say, Ana, would you like to come and teach at our lote? And they call it lote. <laughs> and I think it's the cutest thing in the world. Yeah. But yeah, I did, um, I did a lot of research on the standards that are used. You know, they're all based in ACTFL, but they're used across the country. And they're more or less the exact same standards, but they're called those three different things. Oh, yeah. Foreign language world language or loved. That is one thing we definitely have in common between the two worlds. So there's, there, is, there is a wide variety of acronyms and terminology you need to familiarize yourself with. So I wanted to just stop there and make sure that everybody listening knows what that is. So let's talk about what, what do you think, before we get into really kind of the specifics and the nitty gritty, what do you think the most important thing an effective EL teacher can learn from a, an effective LOAT teacher and vice versa? So this piece, Steve, this is pivotal for me. If I was going to run as world language consultant of the world, this would be the Yeah. Okay. I'll do it. Let's find that <laughs> position. Um, so this is, this is, I feel so strongly about this. This has to do with the use of the target language during classroom instruction. Mm -hmm. So ACTFL, and I'll, I'll go ahead and explain that acronym for our more ELL-focused listeners that are out there. ACTFL is the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. They are essentially the governing body for foreign language teaching in this country. And they have a standard that says instruction during a class period should be 90% in the target language. So that's the language of instruction, right? If you're the French teacher, your target language is French. If you're the Mandarin teacher, your target language is Mandarin. And 10% in English. Now, the interesting thing about that, it has two really big implications. The first one is that 90%, it has to be comprehensible. Mm -hmm. You're not really teaching in the 90%. Exactly. Which I think is, is fabulous. And that context really does apply to both. If you're 
an ESL teacher and you're going on and on and not stopping for comprehension checks, you're leaving students behind and you're not giving them that opportunity to process in their own native language. And that works the same in both contexts, you know. Um, I think that a lot of teachers right now in world language, and I say this confidently, Steve, because I can't tell you how many teachers, when I say this during my trainings, stop and nod their heads and agree with me that so many of us teach the way that we were taught. And I oh, yeah. think it's somewhat of an old school rule that if you're in Spanish one with Senora, whoever it is, it has to be 100% in Spanish, and that's the only way you're going to learn. Well, that's not exactly true because your background and your first language, all of those things that you bring to the learner or bring to the table as a learner, excuse me, really affect as well as your reason for being in that class. So yeah. if you're going on and on without doing comprehension checks, without giving students the opportunity to process what you just heard in the target language, you're not going to really be able to, to grow truly you know, so it's okay. It's absolutely okay. I learned this at a, a session in Actful last year that there's three major opportunities, either checking for comprehensible input, explaining the context or explaining the nature of interactions, that it's perfectly okay if you're the foreign language teacher to stop and clarify in English just to make sure that everybody is on board, right? And so the implication of that for the ESL classes, it's okay to let students process in their native language, especially if they're at the lower levels of learning. If they need to clarify with a native speaking peer or use a bilingual dictionary or use mm -hmm. an online translator if a bilingual dictionary is not available, that's not doing a disservice to the student to throw them in an immersion environment. If they have those tools that they're able to negotiate meaning and make sense of the word, give it to them. Yeah, and I'm sure that's a relief for a lot of foreign language teachers out there. That's one response I have. And the second response I have is just so much of what you said also applies to the to the EL classroom that's stopping and clarifying and letting them use, you know, native language resources. Um, and so much of it is, and you mentioned just understanding the student's background or what they've learned before. I feel like so much of this also is just getting to know your students and understanding where they come from. You know, yeah, data is great, test scores are great, but also really understanding the student's um, particular learning style, you know, we, we get into cultural responsive, um, culturally responsive teaching strategies here. So there's a lot that goes into just, you know, the, the, it's not just 90%, 10%, um, this, this sort of, uh, you know, quantitative um, uh, formula that we have to put together. There's more to it than that. Absolutely, absolutely. And there, there's something I want to say with regard to the ESL teachers that are listening to this 90-10 split. You know, when we train ESL teachers, or we train those content area teachers, you know, the math, the chemistry that might have ELLs in their classroom. One of the core beliefs that I talk to them about is to teach your content as if it were a foreign language. So we want those teachers that have L's in their classroom, they may not be the ESL teachers, but they have L learners in their classroom to use those amazing strategies that really help when a second language is being developed, right? And, and the other point about it is, I think we need to give our ESL teachers credit for the struggle. You know, they- Say, say more about that. Right, absolutely. So this is a theme that emerged when I was reflecting on what we were gonna talk about today. 
ESL teachers, if they are not native speakers of the language of their students, they don't have that safety net of the 10%. You know, they don't have mm -hmm. the safety net to fall back inherently on the English to use for clarification. They have to have really effective tools in their tool belt to be able to provide comprehensible input to their students. They have to be masters of vocabulary development, comfortable using gestures, pictures, these little strat pedagogical strategies that we've picked up along the way, whether we teach ESL or LOAT, and they have to continuously use them to be able to ensure that they're doing the right steps for clarification and their students are understanding and comprehending. And so I really, I, you know, hats off to those ESL teachers that don't speak the native language because they're really, they're going the extra mile. Yeah. Great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, it's different than a, than a foreign language teacher in the position that I that I was in for a long time. And that's one of the things that I've sort of really noticed as I speak with people um, in terms of that struggle, as you put it, that they have, but they do such a wonderful job um, of, uh, of making that happen. So we, we talked about um, some things that they could sort of learn from one another, you know, what, what an effective EL teacher can learn from an effective low teacher and vice versa. What, what do you think some of the common misconceptions are about um, ELL or LOAT teachers that might be worth discussing, especially, uh, you know, to have a better understanding of teaching languages? Absolutely. I think that this question piggybacks really well off the discussion we just had. And so I want to talk about language knowledge and the experience of what it means to be a good language teacher. So a common misconception is that a good French teacher is a native French speaker from France. Yeah, yeah that sounds familiar. Uh, exactly. And that's absolutely not true, you know. A, and here's why. A native speaker may not have actually had to learn the language that they are teaching. So it goes back to that struggle. They may not have had to have these negotiated interactions for input. They may not have had to struggle for meaning. So they might not be able to adequately understand why it is that some of their students are struggling with it. Um, right. You know, a native teacher, Steve, could also be really intimidating to learners of a new language. They might think, oh, she's going to catch every single mistake that I make. Mm -hmm. or, I don't want to speak up in his class because I'm going to get corrected every time I make an error. So it raises the affective filter and it might, for some students, especially if they're secondary learners and they have a lot of social emotional factors going on, you know, when you have to speak a foreign language in front of your peers in That's, middle school. It's horrifying. horrifying. It's horrifying. <laughs> so so it, it, it might be a little bit of a struggle. I can tell you that I struggled with that as a teacher as well. Um, one of my grad school professors, her name was Dr. Elaine Horowitz, and she published the seminal study in the late 80s on foreign language anxiety. And she created this scale that students can use to rate themselves on how nervous they are or what are those factors that affect their ability to really put themselves out there in the foreign language classroom. And a couple of years later, she came back and created one for teachers, which I loved. You know, I'm not a native speaker of French by any stretch of the imagination, but I can teach it pretty well. Mm -hmm. So when I saw that I'm not the only French teacher in the world that sometimes feels nervous about teaching certain aspects to my students because I may not have the exact answer of why this is grammatically this way, you know, or as something that every single foreign language teacher in the world struggles with is, Miss, 
how do you say this in English? Miss, yeah. how do you say this in French? Miss, yeah. you know? And I constantly had to tell my students, I'm not a dictionary. You have a dictionary at your fingertips. Go use it. But you know what, Steve, like that still leads to anxiety. You don't yeah. want to be standing in front of your classroom and make it seem like you don't know what you're talking about. So that's from a low perspective. I think that's one that, again, I hear a sigh of relief sometimes when I say that in my trainings and I get a little nervous because I do get native. Of course, I get native language speaking teachers, but you don't have to be that teacher to you know, to be an effective teacher. So the flip side of that is true from an ESL context. A common misconception is that good ESL teacher speaks Spanish because mm -hmm. ESL students are predominantly Spanish. And again, that's absolutely not true because sometimes some of the best language teachers are not native speakers of the language that they teach, you know, and that's, that's perfectly okay. Um, in grad school, I was very successful in teaching and tutoring my Korean ESL students. Do I speak a word of Korean? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I want to shout out to my co-author in the Boosting Achievement book that I published with Carol Salva two years ago. Carol Salva is a newcomer high school ESL teacher in Houston. And in her classroom, she had speakers of Spanish, Arabic, Swahili, Pashto, Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. Carol doesn't speak any of those languages except Spanish. But in all the times that I was observing her and we were writing the book together, she never had to use the native language of her students. She stayed in English because she had the tools in her tool belt to make herself understood and to give her students practice with the struggle. So, yeah. you know, that's my, that would be my biggest misconception, language knowledge. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that. And I'll just say for the audience, we did not rehearse the answers to these, these questions, no. but, but, you, but your answers are, I mean, I'm saying to myself, I wish that I was in that workshop that you gave when I was a 22-year-old new teacher who was kind of thrown in a classroom by accident with, with that's another story for another time. But I, I mean, I had, you know, 30 students in front of me, 25 of whom were from the Dominican Republic and heritage speakers of Spanish. And here I am, you know, I learned Spanish in college, I studied abroad, but there are many, many things I didn't know. But what I found, and it took a lot of time, was getting to know those students and getting to, to sort of the point where there's this intersection between what, what I could have learned from them and what they could learn from, from me. And just having that respect and that trust, which I hear so frequently from people like Carol um, and Eddie Williams, who is uh, the teacher that was featured in the book, The Newcomers by Helen Thorpe, all of these sort of people who are masters of their craft, but don't speak all of the languages because who does of, of this, these sort of super diverse classes that they're, um, that they're, that they're, that they're trying to manage. I mean, it, it's, it becomes all about really the relationships that you create. And again, like you mentioned, the tools that you have um, in your tool belt to be able to uh, to work with those students and really looking at them as assets. And I think like, I think back to my time, it was almost like they were almost like, it was almost a selfish thing for me because I'm like, oh, man, how much can I learn from these? Like how much, how many more language skills can I learn? How can I learn sort of the Caribbean version of Spanish when I'm used to the yeah. peninsular Spanish version? And I think that's so important, but it really takes, it's hard to do. And there's that, um, that fear and that anxiety that I'm, that I'm also glad you mentioned, not only with students, but also with teachers. And what I see is what I saw as a teacher was when I kind of put myself out there and I also sort of, you know, let students know that, yeah, there's certain things that I don't know that would allow them to really open up a little bit more 
and, and make that struggle and that anxiety more of a productive struggle that they could learn something from. Absolutely. It's all about being vulnerable. So yeah, much for sure. As, both as an educator and as a learner is being able to say, hey, I'm in the same boat as you are. We're both learning. I might be learning your language. You might be learning mine. But the, the win is in the struggle, right? The struggle is half of it. If you don't struggle, you're not going to achieve. Right. But the funny thing about that is so much of it comes back to second language acquisition theory. You know, there's a... There was a study, Meryl Swain, who did a lot of research on the output hypothesis. So she studied the immersion programs in Canada and she found, you know, where there was a, a, a significant growth of the, the dual language and the bilingualism between the students. And she found that it was great and wonderful that students were getting input and they were performing immaculately on the comprehension checks. But when it came time to producing extended you know, sentences and, and, and big pieces of French, they weren't able to do it if they weren't given that opportunity to produce output. Right. And just to try. And so, so much of that, like you said, it comes back to just shifting the mindset. And I remember on my first day when I was teaching, so, so similar to you, my smallest class size, smallest was 26 and my largest was 38. Oh, you had me beat with a 38. That's right? cool. <laughs> uh, high school French learners. And I received the information about their, their background and their grades and their languages at the beginning of the year. And I saw that the class that I taught was, I think, 98% Spanish speaking. And the majority of these students, they weren't even able to identify where Paris was on a map. So I was about to rock their world, introducing them to French language and culture, as well as Caribbean language and culture. You know, the Quebecois, there's just so much that goes into it and so much diversity. Mm -hmm. so I remember on my first day of teaching each year, I would always tell them, you have no idea how powerful each and every one of you are. The majority of you are bilingual and you're on your way to becoming trilingual. Yeah. And think about what an asset that's going to be in your lives, in your communities, for your families to have this language knowledge. So I think us as language teachers in either context, ESL or world language, we have such a powerful position to really shape the lives of our kids. And it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, definitely. Great point. And we don't escape uh, sort of a Highest Aspirations podcast episode without using the word asset or asset-based or looking at our students as assets. And, I, and I'm really glad about that. So I'm glad that that was already mentioned. So let's shift gears a, a little bit because I want to talk about, um, you know, the seven steps books um, are, are, are wonderful. And, you know, if you want to give us a little bit of sort of context on those, and I would love to know, sort of keeping with our theme, um, how, how, how the steps were adapted from an ELL to a low perspective and what were some of the biggest challenges there? Absolutely. So if you're not already familiar, the original book was called Seven Steps to a Language-Rich Interactive Classroom. It was published a little over 10 years ago. I think the first version was 2007 and then updates in 2011. And the audience of that, the intended audience, was predominantly either teachers of ELLs 
in an ESL setting, or as I mentioned earlier, those content area teachers. So anybody K through 12 that happens to have ELLs in their classroom. What do they need to know about language acquisition? And what are steps that have immediate practical implications to get students comfortable in the language, receiving copious amounts of comprehensible input, and giving them low stress opportunities for output? So what happened with the shift there was, Actually, it came about when I got trained by John Seidlitz on the original seven steps. I had just left the classroom and pursued my master's, and I was on my first day as an instructional coach in the school district, and my first day of employment happened to be seven steps training with John Seidlitz. And I meant, first day. Right? And I, I had been told even during my interview, Steve, it's so funny, they said, John Seidlitz, he is our guru. Everything we do in ESL comes from John Seidlitz. And so I was waiting to be impressed and oh my gosh, I absolutely was. By the end of lunch that first day when John had us listening, speaking, reading and writing in German, I thought to myself, I would have been such a stronger language teacher if I had these steps. And so it completely caused this pivotal shift in my life and in my career because from that point on, every time I coached a world language teacher or an ESL teacher or any professional development that I did, it was always through the lens of these seven steps. Now, so the other factor that was involved in the in that training was learning about the MAQ. It's an acronym that we use that stands for motivation, access to language, and quality of instruction. And the significance of that acronym is that there are so many factors that can affect the second language development of our students, but in our control as teachers, we can only control how motivated we are to teach and how motivated our students are. We can influence that, right? Mm -hmm. um, we can influence the access points to language that they have by the use of stems, by vocabulary, by creating structured opportunities for them to practice those stems and those vocabulary. And then, of course, it's a given. Our quality of instruction is in our control. So because those three were so pivotal for me, what I did when it came time for John and I to collaborate on this, I essentially rewrote or added rather a new front matter an entire front section of the book is specific to research second language acquisition research as it pertains to the foreign language classroom on motivation access to language and quality of instruction then each of the seven steps were rewritten again with the foreign language teacher in mind and the conclusion of each of our chapters has a checklist where you can go by and see this is how step one increases motivation. This is how step one increases access to language. So this new book and training really tie back to that theme of just how pivotal second language learner motivation is, those access points, you know, comprehensible input coupled with comprehensible output and how that can help in language development. And so that's from a research standpoint, that's why you'll see that the book is a little bit thicker, um, more research geared, but from just an, you open the book and you see the biggest difference between the two is the one that's geared for the low teacher has activities and sentence stems and dialogues that have already been translated into Spanish, French, and German.
So the book, you can instantly take it and start using those activities in your classroom. And the reason we wanted to do that was me, especially as a French teacher in Texas, I struggled a lot at the time. Now, remember, this was almost 10 years ago of finding really good resources and dialogues that I need to get if it wasn't just passed on, you know, from my French teachers or ones that I pick up at conferences. And so I found that the more I could provide to a teacher to have those tools at their fingertips when they need them, the better it was going to work out for them in their classroom and the more risk they would take in trying out the steps and the strategies. And so that was really important for us. Yeah, great point. And you know, that that really helps having those activities translated. I, I really must help sort of bridge the gap between research and practice because so many of this stuff that we read as teachers or that we don't read because we don't have time, frankly, is, 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 you know, comes from kind of, or seemingly comes from an ivory tower and it's not applicable, but being able to um, have those seven steps and those checklists and those, um, those translated dialogues ready, like you said, uh, allows teachers, I think, to take more risks, which is great. And I'll, I'll just mention also that we'll link to the book and that information um, in the written version of the uh, podcast on the, on the, uh, on the website. We'll talk about that at the end. Coming up in part two of this series, we'll talk more with Anna about creating low-stress opportunities for language output, the role of motivation in language learning, and the importance of infusing cultural connections into instruction. Be sure to subscribe to Highest Aspirations wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss this episode or any of the others we have coming up. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.